and welcome to another special episode of Fault Lines, uh, recorded live from RNDF and um, on our theme of confronting the new alliance of global oppressors. I'm Jessica Jones, NSI's Deputy Executive Director, and I'm joined by John Lipsies, NSI's Director of Policy, and our special guest, Eric Edelman, Chair of the National Defense Strategy Commission, and most importantly, also Professor at Zeiss. Um, for those of you who can't recall his resume at a drop of a hat, Ambassador Edelman previously served as Under Secretary of Defense for Policy, as well as Ambassador to Finland during the Clinton administration and to Turkey during the Bush administration, two countries we hear a lot about in the news, of course, as well as Vice President Cheney's Principal Deputy Assistant for National Security Affairs. If you guys also haven't checked it out, um, Ambassador Edelman has an amazing podcast of his own. I know we're not supposed to hype up other shows here on ours, um, but, but do check it out, Shield of the Republic. Um, which you co-host with Elliot Cohen. Yes, indeed. Um, so you've had two episodes this fall called Everything is Going to Hell, <laughs> <laughs> which couldn't be concluded in even one episode. You needed two parts. Um, and then most recently, you had former Secretary of Defense Bob Gates on to talk about his recent foreign affairs article, which he begins by saying the U.S. now confronts greater threats to its security than it has in decades, perhaps ever. Um, do you think that that sentiment is really how all policymakers are feeling about the current state of geopolitics. And I can't speak for all policymakers, really. I can only speak for myself. But first, Jessica, it's great to be here with you and John. Um, it's great to be here at, at the Reagan Library for the RNDF, which is, I think, just a fantastic uh, event. I came to the first seven, wasn't able to, you know, come to uh, the two after COVID, and now glad to glad Don't worry, I will back. reference your 23rd, R, it's RNDF at 10, you were at the first one. I was at the I, first one. Yeah, that'll come up later. Yeah, I was at the first one. So, so, look, I can't speak for everybody, but I think there is a general feeling among people who closely follow national security that we are entering in a very uh, difficult and dangerous period, some parts of which are absolutely unprecedented. I mean, one element which I've looked at a little bit is the fact that uh, according to the Department of Defense's reports on Chinese military power, China is developing uh, a nuclear capability that will ultimately, by the mid-2030s, match numerically the nuclear capabilities of the United States and Russia. You know, I previously used to say that there was only one country that was a truly existential threat to the United States, which was Russia, because of its large nuclear arsenal. We'll now have two peer rivals in, uh, in the nuclear realm, and that is a circumstance the United States of America has never faced, uh, certainly since the advent of nuclear weapons in 1945. But moreover, I think we're facing a, a, a challenging era. It's been brewing, I would say, for a decade, but uh, it's an era of you know, greater disorder globally, and, I, you know, I know that people talk about the, you know, rules-based global order. Uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin just did that in his luncheon speech here and uh, without in any way implying any disrespect to uh, Secretary Austin, whom I, you know, admire. Um, whenever I hear rules-based international order, my eyes glaze over. I think most Americans' eyes glaze <laughs> over, too. But but here here's the thing. The... The global order that was established after 1945 really rested on one important principle that was in, uh, in the UN Charter uh, that was adopted in 1945, and that was after the experience of the Second World War uh, in a world that now was armed with nuclear weapons, at first only the United States, but it was pretty clear ultimately these weapons would spread to other nations, that 
a world of uh, unbridled, you know, premeditated, unprovoked aggression by nation states against one another was not an acceptable way for people to live. And the United States developed a, a series of alliance relationships and then trading relationships that led to a greater open uh, trading system that increased global prosperity over the years. When people talk about the rules-based international, that is largely what they're, you know, talking about, you know, the system of alliances that the U.S. built to uh, provide for collective self-defense, both in uh, Europe and in Asia, and then later through special relationships with a series of countries in the Middle East, notably Israel, Egypt, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, UAE to some extent. And it's that system that's under attack. And it's over a decade now, we've seen more and more examples of, um, of aggression, which has met with, I would say, an inadequate response uh, from the international community, certainly from the United States. And the result of that is greater disorder. And, and I think if Americans look around and say, God, the world looks like it's going to hell, uh, it's a mess, it's because it is. I mean, you've got the largest war in Europe since 1945. Um, you have a terrible war, first of all, horrific, you know, barbaric atrocities against Israelis committed by Hamas, and now a very, uh, you know, serious war in Gaza that has the prospect, the potential of spreading, you know, more broadly regionally. Um, you have, obviously, uh, the People's Republic of China acting in, in more and more provocative ways in the South China Sea, to some degree in the East China Sea. But there's lots else going on in the world that doesn't get much attention. You've had the ethnic cleansing of Nagorno-Karabakh by Azerbaijan and the threat of perhaps even more aggression against Armenia by Azerbaijan as a result. Uh, you've got a huge civil war going on in Sudan. Uh, we've just finished a war in the Horn of Africa, but it's a very unsettled situation among Ethiopia, Tigray, and Eritrea. Uh, we, we've got, um, you know, massive problems with uh, in the uh, Sahel in sub-Saharan Africa with uh, terrorism. And to me, this is very reminiscent of what social science literature tells us about domestic affairs, which is the so-called broken windows theory. If you have a neighborhood where, you know, window gets broken by vandals, if it's not fixed very quickly and if there's not a police presence there, uh, pretty much you know, immediately thereafter, you will then get more broken windows. And in a pretty short period of time, you'll get a very lawless, disordered you know, urban area. I think the same is true in international affairs, and I think we're seeing that play out. Do you think, you know, moving, putting aside the defense community, um, the American public, they, they read all these headlines, and at some point they kind of begin to tune out, right? There's just terrible and hard headlines every single day. Do you think they, they feel that there's the same sentiment um or you know do they want you know america engaged in global affairs or is it just we're not going to be able to, to deal with all these crises we need to you know concentrate and focus here at home there's there's always been the tendency uh, in our history uh to want to avoid political entanglements you know outside our own hemisphere we've, we've been we've always been willing to police our own hemisphere starting right from the beginning of our, our nationhood. But uh, outside the hemisphere, we've been very leery about taking on political commitments. <clears throat> Ultimately, after two enormous world wars in Europe, we, we did that. <clears throat> and Americans paid a lot of attention uh, in the Cold War to these kinds of issues, in part because 
we lived under the threat in a bipolar Cold War conflict between two superpowers, both armed with nuclear weapons, as, as Senator Lieberman once put it in the title of his book. I think actually stole it from Oppenheimer. Uh, you know, two, two scorpions in a bottle. Um, but since the end of the Cold War, <clears throat> there's been waning attention to this. Uh, the news hall for international affairs in most you know, uh, periodicals and news magazines has essentially gone away. Actually, news magazines have gone away. I mean, <laughs> Newsweek and uh, Newsweek's not even in print anymore. Yeah. And Time, I'm not even sure is that that might still be you know kind of Just person of the year vestig- is pretty much vestigially in print, but but it's they're both basically now online. Uh, magazine. So Americans don't pay a lot of attention to this, but I, but they're aware of the consequences, as you were saying. And I think Americans, you know, understand that there's a lot of disorder in the world, and they don't like it. Mm-hmm. I think they find that um, worrisome and uh, threatening. What I don't think has happened is I don't think our political class, and I'm, I'm being bipartisan here. I think it's both Republicans and Democrats have done enough to explain to the American people how much our freedom and our prosperity depends on some modicum of order in international affairs and that aggression that is not met with a response will breed more aggression and that's not a world, it's going to be a world with more disorder which is going to make them more unhappy and and, uh, put greater uh, stress on uh, our ability to maintain our own prosperity because in the modern world, you know, prosperity in one country, to paraphrase Stalin, is not, not really possible. So, um, you know, I don't think Americans have realized how, how dire the situation is. How, in particular, judging just by the results of the polling that um, the Reagan um, uh, Institute has done, I, one of the things that really struck me from the poll, which, as you both know, was unveiled this morning at the opening session, you know, Americans think we're behind in AI to the Chinese, but we're, you know, got the greatest military in the world. Well, we do have the greatest military in the world, but the um, challenges that we face operating if we got into a conflict with China are so great, I don't think Americans have an appreciation of that. The the challenges are great and growing. Uh, I co-chaired the National Defense Strategy Commission five years ago with Admiral Gary Ruffhead, and we... um, we raised the question in that report of if current trends continued, we said at that time, uh, the United States would be at risk of uh, being on the losing end of a conflict. Um, and we sketched out a few vignettes of how that might happen. Department of Defense was not very happy with us. They wanted to classify those, even though there was nothing classified about them. And we finally got Secretary Mattis to agree we could publish all this. Since that time, the problems have all gotten worse. And the things that we're doing to address them have not kept up with the pace of how much things have gotten worse. So, so was, we're, we're behind the curve. I was saying, I was looking at the 2013 um, RNDF agenda just to see, you know, what the topics were. And you were speaker at their first one, actually, on the national defense strategy, um, looking 10 years forward. And, uh, you know, you're chair of the National Defense Strategy Commission now, um, reviewing the report. And the report points out the the large threat posed by authoritarian governments um, with revisionist foreign policy agendas. And we talk a lot about kind of the growing collaboration between countries like China, Iran, and Russia. Um, Is that something we should have anticipated? Is that really surprising they're growing? I won't, obviously, not partnerships. There's no formal alliance. But could we have have anticipated that? Are we, you know, are we doing enough to address their, you know, growing relationship? 
Um, we probably could have anticipated that. We probably should have anticipated that um, better as a nation than we have. Um, and you're quite right. There's no kind of formal alliance, uh, but you can see just a pattern of how we are moving potentially into a, we're on the cusp, I would say, of a global conflict. It's not World War III, you know, the way I think some people have um, conceived of it. It's not World War III with, you know, Slim Pickens riding down, you know, to Earth on the back of an H-bomb in Dr. Strangelove. But it is global in the sense that if you look at what Russia is doing in Ukraine uh, and Hamas in Israel, you sort of, you know, Russia is being supplied by a million shells produced in North Korea, traveling by train across, you know, the expanse of Russia. Um, the Russian effort is essentially being financed because of all the sanctions that the U.S. and its allies have levied on Russia um, by financing provided by the People's Republic of China and the PRC and a few other countries, including Turkey, uh, who are allowing dual-use goods to circumvent you know, sanctions and, and flow into Russia, allowing them to up their military production because they have expended enormous and lost enormous amounts of military equipment in the last uh, almost two years of war with Ukraine. Um, you see Iran providing uh, support to Russia in the form of Shahid uh, drones that uh, Russians are using uh, to attack Ukrainian energy infrastructure and urban uh, targets. And you you see the possibility that Russia may give, the administration is warned of the possibility that Russia might provide Iran with missile technology and missile know-how. And Iran, of course, turns around and provides some of the very same uh, know-how and equipment to Hezbollah in the north and Hamas in the south. I, you know, I don't want to litigate the issue of whether or not Iran knew about the Hamas raid in, on October 7th in Israel before the fact or not. Uh, as, as Jake Sullivan has said, the National Security Advisor, uh, Iran is deeply complicit in this because they've been providing training, smuggling uh, uh, missiles and rockets into Gaza for years, uh, and none of this could have happened without the material support provided by, by Iran. So all of this is sort of, you know, all of our adversaries, our great power adversaries, Russia and China, are, you know, lesser adversaries, the um, nuclear proliferants like North Korea or would-be nuclear proliferants like Iran are all tied t together in this. Um, and it, it makes, I think, for a very dangerous time. I am, you know, as former Ambassador Trudy, I'm. we talk on the show about kind of these, the middle powers and not necessarily standing as close to the U.S. as they used to, whether it's South Africa, whether it's India at times, or whether it's Turkey, and what we do as they you know, remain neutral on issues like Ukraine, what we do when they kind of take a more transactional approach to um, diplomacy. How do we bring them closer, right? How do we bring them back, if possible? Yeah, with Turkey, it's an interesting question. It's not clear to me that at least as long as Recep Tayyip Erdogan is alive, that it's possible to repair the relationship. Um, in particular, since October 7th, his rhetoric has been uh, pretty blood-curdling in terms of his uh, support for Hamas, his uh, pretty unrestrained criticism of, of Israel and of the United States for its support. I think with Turkey, you know, the country remains an important one. Uh, as long as it's governed by this regime, it's going to be highly problematic as an ally and has not been behaving 
like an ally. We had a senior Treasury official in Turkey just recently expressing great concern about uh, some of what I was talking about earlier, the evasion of sanctions by Turkey uh, with regard to Russia, uh, as well as financial support that flows uh, through Turkey for Hamas. So uh, this is going to be a very problematic relationship for some time to come. I think it's important for us to remember that Turkey remains a deeply divided society and that uh, Erdogan really only represents barely 50% of the country, if that. Um, and so I think we have to have a very kind of long game approach you know, to Turkey, uh, which is very tricky to execute, uh, to be fair to current policymakers. It's very difficult to manage that kind of relationship, particularly when you've got so much going on in the world um, where Turkey is relevant, because Turkey is a Black Sea uh, literal country, so it, and it controls access to the Black Sea through, because of the Montreux Convention. Um, it obviously has a role in the Eastern Mediterranean, um, including over oil and gas, which is an undersea uh, asset that um, is being developed by a variety of countries, um, including Israel, including Cyprus, and where Turkey has really enormous uh, claims that sort of rival China's claims in the East China Sea and elsewhere in terms of the breathtaking breadth that they've expressed. Um, so it's, it's going to be a big challenge for a long time. Okay, so we're moving into a new year. Um, you know, at the start of 2021, uh, I think some people might have predicted... Um, you know, Russian aggression. But I think at the start of, oh, no, start of 2022, at the start of 2022, I think, you know, what happened in Israel, I think, took a lot of people by surprise. What do you think 2024 has in store? My experience over the last few years has made me very chary about <laughs> making predictions. <laughs> I knew You know, that. You know um, Secretary Gates, who you mentioned earlier, for whom I work, you know, used to say we have a 100% record in the Department of Defense of predicting the next war we, we you know always get it wrong so I um, you know I think there are just many worrying signs on the horizon I mean, tomorrow Venezuela is going to have a referendum about claims it has on oil rich provinces of western Guyana and uh, you know is that a precursor to a Venezuelan land grab I mean these issues have been go back to the late 19th century and the U.S. had to interpose itself in those days and Britain had to interpose itself with regard to Venezuela. So this is not a new issue, but it's being resuscitated in an era where already land grabs and territorial aggression have become, you know, more frequent. So is that going to be the next one? Could be, you know, hopefully cooler heads will prevail and they won't do that, but hopefully it's just Maduro, you know, stirring up, you know, uh, nationalism before his own election coming up, but it could come anywhere because the more of this we tolerate, the more of this we will have. Where would you put um, China and the South China Sea and Taiwan on that uh, scale of, you know, in the near future? Well, that's a, you know, that's a worry because, uh, as, as both of you know, Xi Jinping has directed the uh, PLA to be prepared uh, to um, take Taiwan by force by 2027 if necessary. Now, that doesn't mean they've made a decision that they're going to invade Taiwan in 2027. I'm not even sure that they would ever invade Taiwan. I think uh, there are other options that they have that would maybe be um, easier for them to execute and carry somewhat less risk, like a 
a blockade, for instance, of the island, which would be very problematic for, for the United States and our other allies in East Asia to manage. Um, so, you know, uh, and it's there's a debate about whether, you know, um, which way time is running here. Uh, Hal Brands and Mike Beckley have a book, uh, Danger, The Danger Zone, which argues that we're hitting peak China, and that's not inconsistent with some of the economic difficulties we see China having, the demographic uh, decline that we're seeing. Uh, and they say, well, that actually means, you know, that it's a uh, peak China is actually more dangerous than a rising China. You know, other people think China's still rising uh, or it's already declining. So, you know, it's it, it, choose your poison. But uh, the truth is uh, there's potential danger here under any one of those scenarios. And uh, we need to clearly strengthen our ability to deter uh, China in the South China Sea um, and in, uh, in the Strait. And uh, that's going to require... Uh, a long-term investment in defense capabilities, and it's also going to require um, us to re, um, reposition ourselves in the Indo-Pacific, and that is extremely difficult when you have a war going on in Europe and a war going on in the Middle East, and it's a draw on our, our defense resources. Sorry, listeners, I was trying to end on a positive note, but somehow we just got a little bit darker than that when we started. Um, that's, of course, that's a wrap. Thanks so much again to Ambassador Edelman for joining us. Thanks to Dublin Bernie, Claude Jennings, and the rest of the NSI team for producing today's special episode. Um, we are also on YouTube, so if you want to check us out there, please watch us. And if you like what you heard or saw, which you should and must, do please subscribe and rate and review.